In Moscow this summer, a new technology fundamentally shifted competition among world powers. After more than a century of an established order, set rules and power structures, we've witnessed a profound change. World powers have ceded control to technology, and this is what it sounds like. The 2018 FIFA World Cup Russia will see the introduction of the video assistant referee, VAR. Lots of talk about VAR and the, the use of it in the World Cup. And the referee is choosing to look himself. He's given a penalty. A penalty for France in the World Cup final. Antoine Griezmann. <laughs> That's right. I'm talking about video assisted refereeing at the World Cup. A harmless shift wow. in world game or a prognostication of our future all-seeing robot overlords. Hi, this is Darian Bates. And this is Dr. Tobias Wilson-Bates. And this is The Stories We Tell Our Robots. It's the podcast about how we make our technology. And how our technology makes us. All right. Well, welcome back. Welcome back. Oh my gosh. It has been, uh, I think when we said we were going on uh, break, I think we said that we were going to go on break until July and it is uh, September. Yeah. We are back for season three. It's unfortunate. It's turned into more of a kind of Ross and Rachel break kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. Everyone's been wondering. Everyone's, yes. I've definitely read the uh, chat rooms. <laughs> <laughs> but we're back. We're back. We're, stories we tell our robots, and uh, and I think we're we're coming back with a a big season this year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, pro- I mean, most likely the similarly sized to the other seasons, but yes, big uh, thematically, perhaps. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Well, we had, um, I, I guess, to explain, we had a. Uh, I, I think a lot of let's call it success, at, at least the uh, to the degree that we define success. Uh, last season, um, throwing out like you know our, our two guys in a garage series, um, kind of was a nice kind of encapsulation of uh, kind of a theme, and so we thought we'd come back and actually do this whole season on a theme. The whole and, thing. Uh, the whole thing. The, the entire season is going to be thematic, um, almost Aristotelian. Yes. Um, oh well. Yeah. Sure. We'll go with that. Uh, <laughs> exactly. But do you want to do you want to introduce the thing? So the theme of this season is revolting machines. Um, mm. And what I mean by that is particularly this obsession that people have with the idea that machines will inevitably perform some kind of revolution. Um, I, this this is very popular in science fiction. It's also weirdly something that people like Elon Musk are obsessed with. So the right. the idea of a machine revolution. Uh, we're going to probe a bit more specifically into how it pertains to our current themes today. Um, and what I mean by that is that we are constantly giving machines and technologies various kinds of control over, over ourselves. If we think about revolution mm-hmm. as this kind of flip of control. Um, and this season we'll be looking at a whole bunch of those different technologies. What does it mean when we cede control to a machine? What does it mean when we cede government to something that oversees us in a new mechanical fashion? This sort of thing. Mm. Nice. But so apparently starting off, though, we are just simply ceding control to robot referees. Yes, yes. Uh, I don't think we talked about it, but one of the things that happened this summer uh, during our extended break was that the World Cup happened. Ah, ah. It it feels like it is so long ago now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Vive la France. Vive la France. 
Yes, uh, I, uh, we should tell our, uh, our listeners, you know, our father grew up in France, and, uh, or at least spent, not grew up, I would say spent a fair portion of his life in France, um, early life, and our grandfather is a professor, or was a professor of French, and so, yeah, we had a little kind of sweet spot for, uh, for France, kind of a, or a soft spot for France. Yeah, um, a sweet and so, yeah, soft so, spot, yep. A sweet and soft spot, much, much like a uh, pain au chocolat for France. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, yeah, so, so that would... and so I thought, watching the World Cup this summer, which of course is, is probably the most important sporting event in the world, uh, globally, mm-hmm. uh, as it's a, a massive point of international focus, it was interesting to see the incorporation of a technology uh, in, right. a, in, in a game-shifting manner into, the, into yep. the sport. And it was interesting to think about why this can even work in such a massive international event, what that means, what are the sort of underlying narratives that people have to accept when a technology becomes instituted into a a game like this. Well, and even more so, why do people have such a problem with it? I mean, when we're talking about, like, what's... Like, why does everybody seem to have a negative opinion about something that seems, on its surface, to be, I mean, almost obvious at this point? Um... Which that is, is that's that's the thing that which, which that is referees can be better with machines, right? Right. I mean, like, I mean, I wouldn't even say machines. Like, don't we just want to like, given the fact that every person at home can watch something on like video replay and see something that was obviously done in error, why wouldn't we want that kind of technology applied to our sporting events? Yeah, and and I think, uh, and this is the reason for the the epic and exciting opening uh, to season three, I think that maybe looking at uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings might give us some insights into how reorganizing epic conflict using a sort of panoptic eye or an eye that looks down on everything is something that's really interesting and perhaps even necessary to kind of the modern world and how the modern world consumes something like a game. So you've yeah you've just described an epic conflict and a panoptic eye. So you're gonna have to give me. <laughs> uh, you're gonna have to break that one down just a little bit. So what part of what makes the World Cup so interesting is not necessarily the quality of soccer or football if you're anywhere else in the world that's being played. Uh, it's actually this weird kind of internal or external class of, clash of nations element of the mm. of the tournament. This idea that when you're rooting, oh, you're yeah, rooting yeah. for the United States. Oh, not that the United States went to the World Cup. But <laughs> <laughs> or you're not rooting for the United States, yeah. as the case may be. Oh, man. Yeah, that's right. The The United States, man, is there a good Lord of the Rings parallel? They, they're, like, still back in the Shire, I suppose. <laughs> exactly. They're, they're like one of those hobbits that was maybe, um, maybe lesser liked. Yeah, yeah. Whatever the they all had names like you know, slug yeah. button and, and <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, so so yeah, so you all right, so that's a fair point. I mean you're right. The the World Cup is actually not the best soccer in the world. I think it, I think we, we could all I guess those of us who, who actually know soccer, um you're right. I mean I guess you could say, you know, some people argue La Liga, some people argue the you know, Premier League, whatever, but yeah, you generally speaking you don't have wonderful soccer being played at the World Cup. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when I say panoptic, it's, it, it's part of this whole idea that, that things like the American prison system are built on these days, that there's a sort of all-seeing eye uh, that looks down mm-hmm. on, on everybody in the... Um, it's a, it's a, this guy, Bentham, came up with this idea. Well, you can Wikipedia, Jeremy Bentham. Uh, his, his stuffed head is, like, in a closet somewhere. Um, 
<laughs> Which is interesting. Yeah, he, he, he had his body preserved after he died, and they still keep it at this college, although the, the coll- which college it is escapes me for the moment. Um, I like the idea of, like, like neoscience relics. Yeah. <laughs> I, love, I love when there's, like, a future that someone comes up with in the past, and then it doesn't happen in the future. And it's just like, it's, it's like, you know, that's like jokes about like, you know, Disney, Walt Disney's frozen head or something like this. And, uh, mm-hmm. Really thought, you know, cryogenics was going to happen. But yeah. um, so anyway, all the panopticon is by Jeremy Bentham saying is essentially the central space of authority whereby you can look out at everybody, but they can't necessarily look back at you. And in that you're being watched all the time, uh, it changes your behavior. Uh, that you, you mm-hmm. become perhaps more moral or more lawful because you're always under surveillance. Um, right. And this well, is so what does what this I... have to do with, uh, with, with Lord of the Rings? Yes. And for yes. that matter, with soccer. This is a bit of a wind-up. I, I, I apologize right. to our listeners who may have thought we'd be doing less of <laughs> the long yeah, meetings. Yeah, exactly. Thought we'd come back real sharp here. Oh, no. man, yeah. Boy, they were wrong. Um, yeah. <laughs> So uh, I think this is meaningful in Lord of the Rings because uh, for those of you who have watched the movies or read the books, um, the real salient feature of Lord of the Rings, the thing that makes it interesting as an adventure narrative is the fact that the villain of the piece, this figure Sauron, um, actually gets to sort of watch most of the time and has all these various apparatuses for seeing things. He has a, the, the world is incredibly visible to him. And this actually restructures how the adventure happens. And this is really important. Hmm. So, so, oh, well, just a spoiler. The way the adventure happens is that the very important thing that they have to do is to, like take this ring to a volcano to destroy it. Um, but it's very hard to do that when your enemy can see you. So they give it to like generally invisible beings, like these little pathetic mm-hmm. kind of child uh, creatures called hobbits. Um, and then they create you know massive war and epic conflict as distractions from the little tiny hobbits going to do the actual adventure. Um, mm-hmm. And so what this does is, is a couple things. One, it, it splits an adventure narrative that would often usually be focused more on the sort of masculine chivalric acts and the large-scale combat and this kind of thing um, into one, this kind of uh, high-road, large-scale combat, combat, and then two, the sort of low-road, small people who are afraid all the time and incredibly vulnerable. Um, and that it's actually the second narrative that's the more important narrative. It sort of changes mm. what a heroic characteristic is in the adventure. Right. Although, and in the case of The Lord of the Rings, it creates a dreadful second book where you're basically <laughs> just <laughs> reading about Frodo and Sam walking through like the marshes, which yeah. I recall is uh, kind of a fairly um, arduous text to get through. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm sure, although he denied it entirely throughout his life, repeatedly, I'm, I'm sure this is mixed up in J.R.R. Tolkien's experiences in World War One, which mm-hmm. um, itself was the sort of destruction of the idea of a kind of dramatic war scene uh, in favor of mm-hmm. essentially walking through marshes full of dead bodies uh, interminably. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. So, all right, so... Do you, I now need you to come full circle and explain to me why does kind of having this all-seeing eye transform soccer and why are we so resistant to it? Yes, yes. And, and so the, the reason this is what I thought about with video-assisted refereeing is that as soon as players are being watched in their every move on the pitch, 
it changes what they're kind of looking to do in relation to other players. That in mm. in professional soccer in general, but certainly in international soccer, as there were a lot of jokes about this player Neymar, who was diving, who dives generally. That he's a, he's a great striker, mm. but people are always trying to essentially injure him. So he overreacts mm. to the point that if someone tries to do something particularly damaging to him, they'll get punished with like a yellow card or a red card or something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not really so much reason for that anymore once uh, mm-hmm. once there's a video replay that the referee can refer to because suddenly he can see if you're dramatizing a reaction and he can also see if somebody has actually damaged you. You don't actually have right. to sort of uh, correct for that yourself. Mm-hmm. And my understanding, right, which suddenly changes changes something of the not just the tactics that a that a striker like Neymar might use, but the whole way in which the audience is also kind of engaged with the narrative of a Neymar or the the character of a Neymar. Right, that's exactly right. Um, and I, I wanted to um, take us back for a moment to perhaps the most uh, famous or infamous moment of World Cup history, where uh, Diego Maradona, the great Argentinian striker. Uh, accomplishes what he called later called the hand of God, where he mm. uh, yeah where where he jumped up and like knocked a, a ball into the goal using his hand and the referee didn't see it and it counted for a goal and it was part of them getting to and then winning well, the World Cup. Right. Well, I think it's worth taking kind of a, a like almost like a, a breakaway on that and just talk a little bit about kind of the difference in how we used to watch sports. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you think about what sports used to like the way that you used to watch sports. Um, some sports have been easier and harder to watch based upon, based entirely upon the nature of the sport and the nature of kind of video technology at the time. And I think about like the, you know, Neymar, I mean, not Neymar, um, Maradona as essentially being at this time when you're, you're now watching kind of full televised world cup Mm -hmm. and yet you're still not getting this kind of instant replay style, um, viewership that we now have. Um, so that, that play that you talk about, the Hand of God play, is this play against, gosh, they were against, were they against England at the time? So the Hand of God, I think one of the, the important contexts to think about is, A, this is, you're really starting to have the world sit down and watch the World Cup in kind of this nationally televised, huge standpoint. And then also, it's, it's England against Argentina, which yeah. is the, 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 the the nature of those two countries kind of in conflict with each other, I think most recently, if I'm correct, in the Falklands War, right? Yep. And so those two countries are already, like, at each other's throats. And we've subsequently seen, like, these are not countries that have have played nicely with each other, at least on the soccer stage and certainly on the international stage. Um, And so when you throw into this mix this play where Maradona's, the ball's up in the air between Maradona and the goalie. The goalie's coming out, Maradona's coming in. He he jumps in the air and then kind of spins and as he's spinning, flicks his hand up and knocks it over the goalkeeper. Mm-hmm. Um, which, on, which on TV at the time, given the fact that we don't have like 30 cameras running and all these hyper close-ups, it's still somewhat it's not debatable we know what happened but it's it can be it's there's a fuzzy area but certainly in the actual play at the time the referee didn't see it and then Maradona of course afterwards I think in in an interview afterwards I believe calls it the hand of God right yeah yeah Uh, and so it creates this kind of this kind of epic quality which wrapped in this game that was already of an epic quality 
and we suddenly have this kind of amazing mythical inaccuracy or error, which is uh, kind of an extraordinary experience. Yeah, and you could imagine sort of heroism and villainy being born out of a moment like that. That's both yep. sort of raising your side up and sort of casting down another side, but the other side can see it as being cheated in this particular moment. Like, yep. there's a real, this is what I mean when I say kind of like a, an epic quality to the sport, this idea that, like, you know, in the, Michael Jordan's final shot of his career, he, he pretty clearly pushed off of somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But in the moment, that didn't really matter. Uh, or I guess it wasn't the final shot because he came back with the Wizards. The final, <laughs> the final shot right. of his real career. <laughs> the final relevant shot of his career. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, so it's really, interesting to me about this then is so what happens when we think about this idea of 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 video assisted refereeing and really kind of like hyper accurate highly scrutinized video supported judgment and management of human activities Mm -hmm. we do we do run the risk suddenly of taking our epic heroes and our epic stories and making them rather small almost hobbit-sized small. <laughs> well done. Yeah, that's exactly yeah, right. Yeah, you like that? That, uh, uh, you know, you, you lose the sort of the essence of the thing that you were looking at. And it's worth saying that Tolkien was somebody who really valued epic conflict. I mean, this is a, someone who was a scholar right. of Beowulf and medieval literature. Um, and it's also worth saying a lot of the great figures of, of Tolkien's fantasy world are, are pulled almost directly out of, out of this older tradition, out of things like the Carnavala. Um, so it really is interesting to think about this contribution, his particular contribution narratively, as being just specifically this reorientation. The idea once everything is seen, then what you're seeing sort of changes. The nature of, of being seen changes the nature of the thing that is seen. Um, hmm. And this seems to have been the case with the World Cup, too. I mean, I don't have the, the stats, but I felt like there weren't a lot of red cards. Well, I would actually say, I mean... There were a few red cards um, handed out in terms of, you know, double yellows and things like that. But red cards as far as egregious fouls, um, I don't have the precise stats for you uh, from past red card, from past World Cups to kind of put it in context. Um, but I do have a precise number for the number of red cards that were handed out for kind of egregious acts of violence, <laughs> essentially. I think there's a more technical term for it. But basically it's, it's overaggression. Um, the number of red cards handed out this World Cup was um, uh, precisely zero. Zero. Which, which has never happened before. Yeah. And so it's, it's one of those things that I guess you can point to and say, well, there's, like, not only has it never happened before, I don't think there's ever been less than six. Um, although that, that number could be debated on, and check our show notes for that. But it, it's, it's worth pointing out that it fundamentally did alter the way that people play. Like, it's not like it's been one or two every time, and this time there just happened to be zero. There's never been zero before, and there's never really been close to zero before. Um, so it's clear that players, knowing that they were being watched, um, did adjust their play. And it's also worth saying that the World Cup was not the first place where they rolled out video-assisted refereeing. It's actually been um, used in the German leagues, and I believe the Italian leagues, hmm. um, or the German league and the Italian league, and in both cases, it actually has changed the accuracy um, to the positive. Um, it hasn't actually reduced the number of penalties that are being called, but it's actually changed the accuracy of those penalties that are being called. And for soccer, and I won't go into the, the precise 
um, details on this, although we'll link to the story that kind of provides this information for soccer, that's really important um, as far as evening the accuracy of the game, because soccer actually is the most um, susceptible to essentially a home field advantage based upon um, refereeing bias and unintentional refereeing bias. Oh, it's not from crooked refereeing. When I think of home field advantage, I tend to think of you you know the shape of the field better, the fans are kind of cheering for right. you more, but it's actually a referee thing? Yeah, they, there's a, an interesting study that was done um, a while back, actually. I'll give you the proper... Um, I learned about it through um, a Freakonomics episode um, that was where they interviewed uh, Toby Moskowitz, who's the author of... Um, uh, what is it? Sc uh, scorecasting, the hidden influences behind how sports are played and games are won. Um, he's a professor of finance and economics at Yale University. Um, he's a co-author. There were other authors on it. Um, look to our show notes. Um, and what he found was that like soccer actually has the highest discrepancy towards um, home field advantage. Um, in terms of baseball, it's largely negligible. Basketball is a little higher, and soccer is actually the highest. And and why, um, what he found why out is it that it actually works that way? Well, um, it actually has a lot to do with referee discretion. Um, and it's not that referees are crooked. It's that referees have discretionary calls in soccer. And the, two, the major discretionary call that they have that is largely kind of unscrutinized is the amount of stoppage time that they add to a game. So anytime that there's a foul or anything, the referee can stop his watch and then kind of add stoppage time to the end of the game or the end of the half. Um, and what they found is that like referees tended to add more stoppage time when the home team was behind, and they tended to add less stoppage time when the home, field was a, home team was ahead, meaning that it basically it allowed the home teams to keep the lead and the home team, or alternatively, for the home team to have a little bit more of a chance to get the, get the uh, or tie the game at least, um, when they're behind. And, and it was it was high, it was it was very noticeable and very and and kind of had a you know as a significant impact as anybody who watched the World Cup and seeing teams score in stoppage time would recognize. Um, but they found that this was largely due to kind of unconscious decisioning by the ref, and so the idea that in soccer video assisted refereeing would be introduced um, should be a way of essentially evening out. Um, something that I think is kind of an imbalance and kind of a structural imbalance. Um, and yet people, I think, despite kind of all the evidence that this was a good thing, I think people still, you got to the end of the World Cup and people felt, we're still indicating discomfort at this. Um, and I do think it's related it, to... It, it, it seems like there's kind of giving with one hand and taking away with another in terms of... Right. That means that the local fans, who perhaps actually were influencing team games in their team's <laughs> favor, have now lost like that essential ability, despite the fact that this is a perhaps a gift to televi television fans who, who yeah. are less concerned about calls being missed. Right. Well, and, and again, like I know I just went into stoppage time, but there's other things like you know a major goal in the in the final match was a was a video assisted referee. Handball. One of the things I was interested in was that the uh, the uh, Croatian coach afterwards was like, "Well, you don't call that in this kind of game." Mm. Like it was a subjective. It was like it's not that it wasn't a handball; it's that you wouldn't call that handball in this type of game. So it's this kind of level of subjectivity that our robots wouldn't necessarily apply to this, um, and this level of discretion that we've almost expected from human referees that have kind of a contextual awareness that we wouldn't, that we 
are suddenly afraid of losing once we start having this kind of cold calculation of a robot referee. Um, and I think that kind of takes us into this question maybe that we have long tried to, tried to answer, which is, um, is it apocalypse or utopia? So we're doing something a little differently this uh, this season. I yeah, mean, we realized the, that the we were doing... Yeah, new idea. Yeah, yeah, more, more variations. Hopefully this is not us literally jumping a shark, um, <laughs> or figuratively for that matter. Um, but we realized that there was maybe something a little dry about us both giving a number and then both kind of like acknowledging that we kind of like, oh yeah, your number's interesting. <laughs> so this time, this time we are going to force each other to come to a consensus. Uh, uh, of where we end up on this 1 to 10 scale of Apocalypse or Utopia. Yeah, that is our gift to you, listener. And, and exactly, actual exactly. S decisive uh, uh, argument for something in one exactly. direction or another. And you can witness the sibling conflict in action as I try to overrule any of your arguments by with just my <laughs> sheer authority of my two years in, in, in age. Um, so, so, Apocalypse or Utopia, this, ri this the rise in general, of the idea of essentially robot authorities in our sporting events, and maybe in our sporting events as our, as our kind of a, a staging point for greater human endeavors. Boy, man, I really wish that you were starting off on this one. I would say um, it's almost necessarily kind of apocalyptic in a way. I mean, this is, the, to, to go back to Tolkien, this is sort of his idea that essentially once you start bringing this form of vision into a space, you've lost the space. Um, mm -hmm. And what you may gain out of it could be a good, oh, I see, so it could go towards Utopia then. Oh, well done, Tolkien. Uh, mm. <laughs> I've talked myself back out of it. Um, I was going to say, what just happened? Yeah, whoa, <laughs> to the Grey Havens. Um, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Although I'm not sure that this video assisted refereeing in the Grey Havens. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, this is a good point. This is a good point. It's just, you know, just elven feasts and harp music, I think. Um, exactly. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm so indecisive about this. I feel like I'd ultimately perhaps land somewhere around a four. I think there is a little bit more danger, assuming that, right, like, assuming one is Apocalypse and ten is Utopia, I put this around a four. I think it's it's ultimately perhaps a little bit more bad than good. I think that one mm. of the really interesting things about soccer as a sport is that it's profoundly, profoundly simple. One of the reasons I think it's reached the level of global saturation that it has is that all it takes is like some kind of object that you kick around in two different places opposite each other where you're trying to get it. And the, mm -hmm. more, the more technology you bring into a sport, the more you stop it to get things, scare quotes, right, um, the more you remove it from the sort of uh, widely accessible domain. I mean, I, I think about American football as the kind of worst-case scenario of, mm -hmm. you know, stopping every, you know, 25 seconds and then pausing and then waiting for a while and then layering television timeouts and team timeouts and challenges and on top mm -hmm. of that mm -hmm. um, until you've sort of lost the initial thing that you actually love to watch. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. It's, it's, I, I, I disagree a little bit with the, where the danger really comes in because I do think, you know, again, based upon um, kind of the research that they've done on the use of VAR in um, the German and the, the, the Italian leagues is that it, 
it actually takes far less in turn it interrupts the game far less than even like a corner kick does hmm. right so it's it's it actually hasn't been shown to interrupt the pace of you know the the, the pace of play um, or, or perhaps to go to our earlier example it, it interrupts play even less than Neymar rolling around on the field for right. a couple minutes <laughs> exactly if we can replace Neymar's antics with a uh, with a viewing of a of a video screen I think we we're um, I don't know. I don't know that we're in the worst place. Um, that being said, I, I think about that that question of what happens if Michael Jordan's shot is called off because of a push off foul against the mm-hmm. Utah Jazz, right? What happens? Certainly, um, you know, the Utah Jazz might be in a better place, but we lose something really. I think really kind of important. And I think about in baseball why they haven't switched to having robots calling balls and strikes, mm-hmm. right? That, which is, you know, they, 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 can, they can use video to, you know, check home runs in baseball and, and, and even check kind of out, you know, safer out at first kind of stuff. But they could very easily apply, you know, balls and strikes as a tech, you know, using technology to call balls and strikes and they don't. Um, and I think about the the player Greg Maddox, this pitcher, um, most famously from the Braves, although also pitched for the Cubs, um, and then eventually the Dodgers. But just extraordinary pitcher, and he could get over time. He could get the he was so pinpoint accurate, and he was so clever in how he used the strike zones that he could essentially expand the strike zone between by about eight inches by the end of the game. Oh wow! Just by just by simply moving the ball further and further outside very gradually over the course of the game to where the ump was eventually calling balls that were explicitly balls <laughs> strikes. <laughs> um, and there's something about how that flexibility to alter the very nature of the rules of your game um, is something that I think feels very human. And somehow removing that dimension somehow feels like we're we are taking some of the magic out of it. Um, and it does feel like that, that, that broadens into kind of our overall expectation about the world. I was struck the other day watching um, my son play soccer. Um, and there was the ball that, that ended up going to the goal. And again, my son is, is, at the time, again, it was the other day, this was about a year ago. Um, my son was five at the time. So this, we hardly needed instant replay on this. Um, I don't <laughs> think they were even calling games. But I watched the ball go in this one time, and I was just like, oh, I'd love to see that in replay, as if I needed, as if I expected that replay right, right. Um, to be there. Like, we, like, everything should be able to be renewable and reviewable, and um, it wasn't. And it, it makes the idea that you expected, the idea that everything is being videotaped and everything is being kind of on people's phones and on security cameras and all that, I don't know. It feels like maybe we lose a little bit of the epic in the world, and I feel like, you know, maybe the maybe the loss of that is 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 a larger tragedy than we're aware of right now. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, and I I think that's like, that's one of the the weird, interesting takeaways from Lord of the Rings is that they do all this immense work to destroy this person, uh, this you know, I guess witch lord or whatever you want to call Sauron. Um, Mm-hmm. And then all the magic dies, and it's kind of like it, every adaptation of Lord of the Rings cuts like the last chapter out, which is like this return right. to the Shire. 
And it's just, it's, mm-hmm. it's real pathetic and real boring. And it's just like local politics and old family grudges right. and like a person with a knife in your house and this kind of thing. Right. Um, and that there really is a loss. There's a, there's a deep, deep tragedy to losing the thing that you were, uh, you know, kind of spending all the rest of this time fighting to destroy because it's also incredibly toxic. Right, right. We, we really, really don't want to have bad refereeing in our most important contests, sports, sporting contests. And yet somehow having perfect refereeing makes it all feel a little bit hermetic. Yeah, yeah. And by, are you, so are you with me on four then? You know what, I'm, I'm actually going to even push it even further. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, I think we should. I think we should go to to three and a half to add a fraction. And the only reason why I wouldn't go to to three is because at the end of the day, how apocalyptic can be can our sporting <laughs> events really be? Yeah, but I think, and it's worth saying, you know, as as much as as certain elements of talking about the World Cup as like being a major element a moment in kind of technological history. Uh, can be a little bit tongue-in-cheek, it does seem like an interesting aspect uh, uh, of thinking about how uh, nations interact with technologies. It's The World Cup is a very, very conservative event because um, you mm-hmm. have to get all these different nations to agree on like a particular set of rules. So mm-hmm. integrating new technologies, it may say something about where sports are going, it may say something about where culture is going. Certainly people seem to becoming, be becoming more comfortable with massive amounts of data, uh, of their data existing in the world and sort of circulating in the world. Well, I do think it's, I do think this is an interesting, um, and I think we avoided it on this particular episode to extrapolate from kind of the use of video-assisted refereeing into the use of things like video-assisted judiciary and video-assisted, you know, but I think that is sort of where we see this going, and I think that's that's definitely something that we will be exploring later, Um, but yeah, no, I think that's that's good. I think think there was actually not that much conflict in this particular Apocalypse of Utopia. I think we both kind of, we both kind of yearn for a little bit less certainty and a little bit more drama, but, uh, but we shall see. Yeah, we did it. Um, season three, we're here. We did it. Season three is in the books, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll close on on one thing. Um, for those of you who who have not been to our website, there is going to be a, a new feature. Not a new feature. What would you call it? Um, a new opportunity. Yeah. Uh, a, a swag. <laughs> this is yeah. This is an opportunity for everybody. This is an opportunity for everybody. A limited opportunity. Um, right. We got new shirts. We got, we got Stories of Tell Our Robot shirts. They are limited edition. So, um, so with the launch of season three, hopefully with a greater professionalism everywhere, we shall see. Um, we also, we also uh, limited edition shirts, yellow or blue. Check them out, storiesfortellourrobots.com. Um, uh, they are going kind of like hotcakes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've never seen a hotcake go, so I think that's right. <laughs> that's right. Um, awesome. Well, uh, look forward to, to next week. Um, oh, it's be we good. shall see. What, we're not even sure what it's going to be yet. Yeah, we have a list somewhere. It's okay. But Professionalism. It'll be, revol- it'll be revolting. Professionalism is our byword. It will <laughs> exactly. be revolting. It'll be revolting. All right. Well, um, until next week. All right. I'll talk to you then. All right, love you. Love you too, man. Bye. Bye.